Hi, welcome to 20th Century Facts and Events, my podcast that digs into the stories behind the news of the 20th century. Whew, it's been a long time coming, this one. Thanks for hanging in there if you've been listening before, or thanks for coming back, because uh, really, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been two years. Uh, just to give you a brief summary of what's been going on with the other series, uh, each is about me trying to understand the world that we live in now by reviewing what happened in our recent past. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you have a minute, send me an email from wherever you're listening to this. From what I see, I have listeners in more than 100 countries and I'd be happy to hear from you. You can email me at 20thCenturyFacts at gmail.com. So yeah, this podcast is drastically overdue. Believe it or not, I started it not long after I finished the series on India and Pakistan. Just took me far too long to accomplish. Uh, I blame TV, maybe a poor work ethic for my side hustle. Probably not a great book selection to start out, but I think the results are, are worth it. Uh, you can be the judge. It is finally ready. And uh, this is one of, I think, probably what will be three. And uh, the, de- the next two will be much less time because uh, that was one of the reasons it took me this long. I wanted to make sure that they were almost all complete before I even put out the first one. So uh, listen for the rest to come soon. So some topics are definitely more difficult to tackle than others. And that might just be a personal sensibility. The topic of the Nazi Schutzstaffel is interesting to me because I want to understand how it came to be and who became its members. And please don't misinterpret my interest with admiration or condoning the agenda and political malice. I'm fascinated specifically because a very large section of society became implicated in National Socialism in post-World War I Germany. However, I don't believe those people were so different from us. Yet they are largely responsible for the most ferocious acts of murder in the last century. As long as I can remember, Europe of the first half of the 20th century has held a fascination for me. World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Weimar Republic, the creation of the Soviet Union, and the political struggle between fascism and communism that followed the demise of empires, spurs my imagination despite the many terrible things that resulted in the period. And among my many fascinations has always been Germany from the beginning of the century until after World War II. I think many people have limited understanding of the difference between the young German Empire that fought the First World War and the embittered German autocracy that fought World War II. I know that the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed on June 28, 1919, that officially terminated hostilities from World War I, was responsible for many of the conditions that led to the rise of Nazi power in Germany. And all there is no question that the Nazis did gain an early following among some Germans, they were not universally popular until it became impossible to not support them. This podcast intends to look at one aspect of the rise of the Nazis, the Schutzstaffel, or SS, as much as it is possible to separate the SS out from the rest of Nazi Germany. I'm going to talk about the police state that Germany became with its many branches, the Schutzstaffel, or the SS, the Sicherheitsdienst, the SD, and the Gestapo, Kripo, and Orpo. 
We are also not able to talk about the SS without talking about the man behind it, Heinrich Himmler. Perhaps one of the most unassuming men in the upper echelons of the Third Reich and the internal power dynamics of Nazi Germany. And what a den of snakes the Nazi hierarchy was. I think I've mentioned this before, but it can be unfair to judge the past through our contemporary lens. In order to better understand the rise of what we refer to generally as Nazism, we have to put ourselves in Bavaria in 1919. The war to end war is over. For many proud German military men, they considered that it was ended prematurely by a cowardly political class, which in turn became the equivalent in their discourse of a treacherous Jewish Bolshevik class. Germans had sacrificed greatly in the four years of the Great War, and there had been no resounding military defeat that ended it. German borders had hardly had a chance to stabilize in the not quite 50 years since the unification of the German Empire in 1871, and many provinces were still very proud, territorial, and somewhat independent. Prussian aristocrats had dominated the German military hierarchy, and Berlin, as the capital of Prussia, was not respected by all provincial residents. Post-war German society was becoming just as polarized as the rest of Europe and the world as far as the role of the proletariat or the working class. The Russian Civil War would continue for years to come, which the Bolsheviks would eventually win, and disgruntled, unemployed Bavarian men and veterans were meeting in smoky beer halls discussing the terrible state of their country. To many, the German leadership in Berlin had sold them down the river by ending the war and succumbing to the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty made Berlin responsible for an insurmountable war reparations payout in the realm of $33 billion at the insistence of France, who still resented the large war indemnity forced upon them by Prussia in 1871. Germany was forbidden to have anything but the smallest military force for defense, the Reichswehr, and it lost some pre-war territory to Poland, France, and the new country of Czechoslovakia. Hundreds of thousands of men had been killed, lost, or maimed, and all for less than nothing with the unconditional surrender and massive war reparations to which they had submitted. Ex-military men were decommissioned, and they commiserated and plotted all over the beer halls of Munich. Many returning veterans joined what was known as the Freikorps regiments. Decommissioned German soldiers joined this paramilitary force for the familiarity of its camaraderie and to fight the communists threatening to take over the new republic. Their first mission was to vanquish the communists from Bavaria, the province in southeastern Germany bordering Austria. The further goal of men like Captain Ernst Röhm, who in the Freikorps leadership, was to gather strength and weapons for a future assault on that viper den Berlin. And even before Ernst Röhm became the prominent leader of a right-wing militia group in Munich, a young corporal was identified as a natural orator and an asset to the movement, Adolf Hitler. He was described in August 1919 as follows. Hitler particularly is a born demagogue. At a meeting, his fanaticism and popular appeal compel his audience to listen to him. Shortly after he began working with the Reichswehr, the limited armed forces of Germany and the Weimar Republic, in his capacity keeping an eye on Bavarian political parties, he was sent to a meeting of the German Workers' Party, or Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, a collective of men who, in addition to their hatred of the Jewish Bolsheviks and the new Weimar Republic, 
preached a non-democratized socialism for the working class. Within six months, Herr Hitler was the head of propaganda for the newly renamed National Socialist Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, the NSDAP, and a year later he was the president. Hitler would preach his National Socialist agenda all over Munich, and Rome's ex-military men would attend the meetings to beat up anyone who disagreed with their message. In this aggressive band of thugs, little more than a political gang really, was the seat of German secret police for more than the next two decades. These brown-shirted thugs were the Sturmabteilung, or the SA, the Storm Detachment. From the outset, the SA and the fledgling Nationalist Socialist Party were at odds. Hitler saw the Sturmabteilung as the strong arm and forces of his agenda. But Ernst Röhm, who was first a military man, had no intention of taking orders from a pol politician. So SA officers were instructed not to take orders from Hitler. Hitler then recruited Hermann Göring, a decorated World War I pilot, as head of the SA, which did almost nothing to improve his influence on the organization. Because he recognized the lack of influence he had with the SA, Hitler created his own internal bodyguard, which would come to be made and disbanded several times as he worked out the kinks. The first try was the Stabschwacher, SA men dressed in a field grey uniform who wore black ski caps with a death's head button. This special detachment was created to protect Hitler from all enemies, internal or external, but was broken up by SA leaders. The second attempt was named Stostrup, the assault squad Adolf Hitler. And we're still looking at really early days in Munich. Neither the SA or the Nazi party had many members or influence. But it was around this time that Hitler sought to take advantage of a break in Bavarian politics, and in November 1923 launched the November Putsch, an ill-conceived plan thrown together with only a few hundred men and poor organization. The Putsch was inspired by Mussolini's March on Rome the previous year, but the National Socialists failed to unseat the government, and the result was Hitler's imprisonment, as well as that of other National Socialist leaders and the banning of the SA and the party. While Hitler spent his time in prison writing a book, Rome got away without prison time and began reforming the Sturmabteilung as the front ban, despite the illegality of any military force in the Weimar Republic. The front band began to attract recruits from a wider region than the SA had, pulling in as many as 30,000 men. Hitler was getting a little nervous in his prison cell at his lack of control in this new venture. But Röhm wanted no political influence on his paramilitary front ban, and after Her Hitler's early release from Landsberg prison in 1924, he and Röhm agreed to disagree. Hitler wanted an elite force that was answerable to him and the party, not the SA whose loyalty was clearly to Ernst Röhm. In the spring of 1925, Hitler ordered the creation of small elite bands of specially selected young Aryan men from 23 to 25 years old who would be his new headquarters guard. There were a few working titles initially, but by November of 1925, this new elite unit created under the leadership of Julius Schreck would be known as the Schutzstaffel, or SS, the Protection Squad. The Schutzstaffel was promoted and propagandized as an elite organization within the party, 
something to aspire to. The SS man is the most exemplary party member conceivable, was the catchphrase. NSDAP groups across Germany were encouraged to set up their own SS units so that their meetings would be protected from communists and other troublemakers. The lack of coordination and internal party structure and leadership led to the SS falling under the purview of the SA command, despite the obvious conflict of having a separate militant faction for the politicians. This internal struggle between the SA and SS, between Hitler and Ernst Röhm, as well as several other squabbles between party members, were indicative of how things had been and how they would continue to be for the next 20 years in the Nazi party and the Third Reich. Rom and Hitler shared the same goal, the end of the Weimar Republic, and to reinstate the great German state, but they had very different agendas. Hitler had disagreed from the beginning with keeping the word socialism in the party name, but had been persuaded to do so to appeal to the working class and the quote-unquote light communists. Rom and many in the SA actually believed in true socialism for Germany. Nazi Germany would become a huge machine of competing interests, vying for supremacy and power. Under SA leadership, the SS was forbidden from pilching more than 10% of the SA for its ranks, which prevented active recruiting, obviously. So for the initial years, the SS remained a pet project of Hitler's, under the leadership of the Sturmabteilung, exactly the group he hoped to replace with the SS. Ernst Röhm aspired for the SA to replace the Reichswehr, the Weimar military, over time. Hitler did not share that same goal because the SA would not be subservient to his political ambitions. And during the tumultuous decade of the 1920s, new, eager, ambitious young national socialists made their way through the ranks and were noticed as they climbed the party ladder. One such young man was Heinrich Himmler. Born at the turn of the century, he had not served in the Great War. He came from a middle-class background and was neither charismatic nor handsome, but had been involved with nationalist groups from his and the early 20s. He became disillusioned with the internal party strife, but was fully taken with Hitler. He idolized him, even speaking with Hitler's picture as he developed his own theories about German-Nordic racial superiority and a romanticized notion of German history. While spending time in rural Bavaria as an agricultural student, and witnessing the decline of rural farming, Himmler created his own idea that somehow global Jewry was responsible while simultaneously reaching the conclusion that the Nordic race had been responsible for all great civilization since the beginning of time. Himmler's organizational skills and devotion to National Socialism brought him to the attention of the Führer and on January 6, 1929, at the ripe age of 29 years old, he was installed as the head of the Schutzstaffel, which he envisioned as the Imperial Guard of the New Germany. At the time, there were a grand total of 280 SS men across the country, but the roots of Nazi power were still in Bavaria. Himmler wanted to expand the influence of the Nazi party and the mystique of the SS. His recruitment policy began with seeking Nordic men, his master race. But from the beginning, non-Aryans were allowed to join by virtue of prior military service. Many of the initial recruits came from the Freikorps, the paramilitary militia groups that had existed in Europe for decades. But 
In the post-war era, Freikorps men were predominantly disillusioned military men who were upset with the outcome of the war and angry at the Republic. Traditionally, they had fought against the bourgeoisie and many thought that a new order had been the goal of World War I. They were attracted to the possibility of the new Germany under the new National Socialists, choosing to focus on the Socialist in the name. Himmler bent the SS message to appeal to these people. Never underestimate people's need to belong. The SS gave these men a place to belong, and better still, it was a place of power and dominance. After the Freikorps men, the next group that provided recruits were economic refugees from the stock market crash. Many of these men were bankrupt with nothing else to do. By December 1930, Himmler had successfully expanded the SS from the initial 280 that he had started with to over 2,700, and Hitler gave Himmler and the Schutzstaffel more independence from the SA. The SS created its own military structure parallel to the Reichswehr, starting with Scharfsführer, or Corporal, to Truppführer, Sergeant, and up to Sturmbahnführer, Standabterführer, Oberführer, and Gruppenführer. You get the idea. Himmler saw the task of the SS primarily to carry out police duties within the party. And as early as 1925, they had begun collecting confidential information on party members, building dossiers to ensure their loyalty. It's not clear if this was done at the behest of Hitler. Based on my reading, I would guess that it was not specifically directed by him, but opposing forces within the party were encouraged to work against each other so that Hitler could ultimately play leader in arbitrating the divisions. And the lack of unity also prevented anyone from gaining more power and influence than Hitler himself. In 1931, another ambitious and ruthless young man joined the party, and subsequently the SS, Reinhard Heydrich. Himmler hired Heydrich almost immediately upon meeting him, and listened to his ideas of creating an SS intelligence service. Within the year, Heydrich was building the new intelligence organization, which would soon become known as the SD, the Sicherheitsdienst. The SD became an intricate web of spies and informants, so typical of any dictatorship, whose purpose was to subvert any dissent of the party, as well as spy on possible Marxists, Jews, Freemasons, and to keep tabs on party members and their weaknesses, anything that could be exploited to advance the power that Himmler and Heydrich held. Heydrich's aim for the police was to pass from defense to offense. Rather than solving crimes, his mission with the police, quote, was to raise the highest level the activity of our people's innate forces by correcting and directing their thoughts in a single direction in the process eliminating from the national thinking all foreign and therefore distinctive tendencies." End quote. Such as thinking for yourself, uh, not thinking the way everyone else did, uh, having your own opinion, disagreeing with the government, yada yada. But in typical backstabbing Nazi fashion, once Heydrich was named to head the SD, several other leading Nazis insisted that he was not a true Aryan and had Jewish ancestry. Heydrich was quickly able to discredit those rumors. Despite this apparent consolidation of power, Hitler's hold on power as head of the Nazi party is still tenuous in 1930. The Nazis are just a loose organization at this point. They have no power within the country. Of those involved within the NSDAP, there are significantly different interests. 
Among the competing interests are those of Ernst Röhm and his Sturmabteilung still. Röhm had abandoned the Nazi party for a post as a consultant to the Bolivian army after disagreeing with Hitler and Ludendorff about the direction things were going in the mid-1920s. Hitler called him back in 1930 to serve as the SA Chief of Staff, subservient to Hitler's role as Supreme Commander of the SA. Rome accepted, returned to lead the SA, which numbered in the millions by the 1930s. Defense of party leadership and defending Nazi meetings was now the purview of the SS, but the SA thugs still attacked Jews, communists, and other potential threats. It's easy to forget that communism was a force to be reckoned with across Europe in the 20s and 30s. The Russian Revolution was meant to be the beginning of a change in the global order. Vladimir Lenin had established the Communist International in 1919, and as per Wikipedia, it was a, quote, Soviet-controlled international organization that advocated world communism. The Comintern resolved at its second Congress to struggle by all available means, including armed force, for the overthrow of the international bourgeoisie and the creation of an international Soviet Republic as a transition stage to the complete abolition of the state. End quote. The SA was often fighting the Rotfrontkampfverbund, the military communist arm of the German Communist Party. Not complete innocence insofar as their street brawls with communists were concerned. But the SA's blue-collar origins and membership were becoming a bit of a hindrance. The SA was all brute force and heavy drinking. Thugs in brown shirts. Rom also started to become a liability because of his homosexuality, which had always been known, but was now more and more acknowledged. Hitler and Rome were among the early Nazis, and still before the election in 1932 managed to keep their interests aligned. Hitler was loyal to Rom because he'd been around so long, but Himmler, Heydrich, and Goering saw Rome as a threat. Rom still wanted the SA, now numbering over 4 million men to replace the Reichswehr which was limited to 100,000 men by the Treaty of Versailles. So both the Nazis and the Communists in Germany were on the rise in the early 30s. President von Hindenburg had been elected in 1925 for a seven-year term, but his government was stagnant and ineffectual. A Weimar government ruled mainly through decree by Chancellor Brüning, kind of like ruling through executive orders in the US. Elections were held as scheduled in early 1932, von Hindenburg did end up winning with more than 50% in the second round of voting, but lost the support of his chancellor, who he dismissed anyway before the summer, but he also lost the support of a significant percentage of those who had supported him in the 1925 vote. Von Hindenburg would nominate two more chancellors before the end of the year, both of whom would fail in the position. Finally, von Hindenburg, who was very concerned about allowing the communists to gain power, appointed Hitler, leader of the National Socialist Democratic Workers' Party, as chancellor in January 1933. Within a month, an arson attack on the Reichstag, the German parliamentary building, gave Hitler the excuse he needed to pass a decree that suspended civil liberties and constitutional protections, which included habeas corpus, or freedom of expression, freedom of the press, the right of free association and public assembly, and the secrecy of the post and telephone. He eliminated everything private, and everything that makes a democracy a democracy. 
The Reichstag decree allowed the government to arrest prominent communists who happened to have been their political enemies, who they accused of setting the fire, and prevented them from winning seats in the next round of elections. Hitler further extended his own power after Reichstag elections in March, then finally after von Hindenburg died in 1934, Hitler created his own new position, Führer and Reichskanzler. going to take a quick break here and before we go to our actual sponsor talk a little bit about my real company my main gig is our family furniture business camlinfurniture.com or just camlin furniture in the pre.com era we make household furniture for every room of your house home office bedroom beds dressers nightstands desks bookcases uh, dining room furniture dining room tables wooden chairs sideboards, buffets, credenzas, and living room furniture, TV stands, media stands. We do custom as well. We do vanities, all kinds of stuff based outside of Montreal, Canada. If you're anywhere in North America and you are looking for any of the above or something unusual and high quality, check us out at camlinfurniture.com. I'm also going to take a second to promote my son's band, Group Project. They are just breaking out on the scene. They have millions of listens on certain songs on Spotify and you can find them on iTunes or Spotify. So that's Group Project. Thank you. Once the Nazis had been elected, the patronage posts were doled out. But Himmler was only given the position of acting police president of Munich. Not to be dismayed, Himmler and Heydrich began creating their ideal police structure in Bavaria with eyes on the entire German police force at all levels. Himmler wanted to be in charge of a national Reich's police force. Hermann Göring, another Nazi member of the Reichstag, and one of the most powerful and influential Nazis, whom Hitler had named Minister of the Interior for Prussia, also had a vision for a police force. Göring appointed a Himmler rival within the SS, Kurt Dalyuej, to the Interior Ministry and to head the non-political police of Prussia or Northern Germany. Dalyuej had been head of the SS North divisions in Prussia, which at the time was considered most of Northern Germany and much of modern-day Poland. Geographically, it was as large as the rest of the German provinces together. Himmler and Heydrich did their best to keep tabs on Dalyuj through spies, but he and Göring had their own agenda. Once they took over the Prussian police, Göring began dismissing any and all opponents of the Nazi party. With the assistance of Rudolf Diels, he separated out a small section of the police called Abteilung 1A then began creating laws to remove it from Prussian administrative authority. Subsequently, Abteilung 1A was physically moved from the Alexanderplatz police headquarters to its own office on Prince Albrechtstrasse in Berlin. Goering was in effect creating a secret independent political police force that would be legally named Geheimnis Staatspolizei, 
or as it would be commonly referred to, the Gestapo. While Goering established the Gestapo in Berlin, Himmler maneuvered to gain control of the police forces in the other German states. By early 1934, the Nazis had gained control of much of German authority and Himmler and Heydrich had successfully gained control of all of the police services. From his post in Bavaria, Himmler worked on elevating the status of the SS to exceed that of the Gestapo and the SA, as well as all local law enforcement. On several occasions, Himmler claimed, claimed to prevent attempts on the life of the Reichskanzler Hitler, and Himmler successfully convinced him to create another special detachment of the SS, the Liebstandarte SS Adolf Hitler, his own personal bodyguard. He also created Sonderkommandos to persecute and detain political opponents in Bavaria, which became the testing ground for a new political police. It was in Bavaria that Himmler established the first concentration camp, Dachau, theoretically to hold political prisoners and opponents of the regime. Himmler issued an emergency decree in Bavaria which allowed for preventative custody so that you could be arrested if even it seemed as though you might commit a crime. Dachau was so successful that it served as the blueprint for all the concentration camps to come for the next 12 years. The Minister of the Interior at the time, Wilhelm Frick, was critical of the way Himmler was running his police experiment in Bavaria and in particular how the policy of protective, or maybe preemptive custody is more appropriate, was being abused. But despite his misgivings about the methodology, Frick shared Himmler's goal for a centralized police system in the country, and bit by bit he gave control over the police in each state to Himmler and Heydrich. Heydrich found the state police too restrictive. Despite his best efforts, his desire to manage with an iron fist was repeatedly thwarted by lawyers. Heydrich was envious of the Gestapo that Goering had set up independently of lawful oversight. Even at this time, there were people within Germany who were trying to abide by the laws, but they were circumvented all the time. Goering wanted to keep control of Prussia, but there was a greater threat to his control over Prussia and one that also affected his rival Himmler, the Sturmabteilung. Goering controlled the Gestapo, which effectively controlled Prussia, the only German state whose police Himmler and the SS did not expressly control. But the time had come to call a truce with Himmler and unite against their common threat, Ernst Röhm and his SA. Göring held out for the best arrangement that he could, managing to remain a little independent of the Reich Minister of the Interior's complete authority. Ultimately though, Himmler became inspector of the Gestapo as well as head of all the police in Germany. Heydrich became the head of the Gestapo and remained head of the SD, and Arthur Nieb took over the criminal Polizei, or Kripo. Once Heydrich headed the Gestapo, he defined an enemy as, quote, An enemy of the state is anyone who consciously opposes the people, the party, and the state, their ideological tenets, or their political actions, end quote, which loosely applied to communists, Marxists, Jews, political activists, political activities of the churches, Freemasonry, national opposition parties, habitual criminals, abortionists, homosexuals, and any other group or individual the Gestapo and Heydrich found inconvenient. With their talons firmly grasping the reins of power, 
Himmler, Heydrich, and Göring began to plot against their greatest rival within the country, the SA under Ernst Röhm. In order to gain and hold power in Nazi Germany, one had to fight and scheme for it, and there was no unity among the NSDAP. It was a coalition of convenience. There were the original members, the hardcore old fighters from World War I, the fanatical survivors of the war who felt betrayed by the politicians who signed the Treaty of Versailles. Then there were the right-wing racists, who held the Jews responsible for communism, the betrayal of the war, and the economics that led to the Depression. That leads us to the folkish nationalists, those have-nots who had suffered economically because of Black Thursday and the resulting depression, and needed someone to blame. And lastly, the members of the army, the Reichswehr, as well as the business world and the bureaucracy who believed Hitler, the demagogue, could make Germany great again. And the power was beginning to coalesce within the Nazi hierarchy. Göring and Himmler made their peace in order to deal with a greater threat. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? The SA presented the greater threat to their collective power. Rome was leading a cohort of several million men and had always had the plan that the Sturmabteilung would replace the Reichswehr. The generals, most of whom were old-school soldiers from aristocratic military families in Prussia, could not tolerate the idea of the undisciplined thugs in the SA becoming an unruly German army. And neither could other contenders for leadership within the party. Ernst Röhm and his SA had become a problem that needed to be solved soon. Hitler didn't fold the Reichswehr into the Sturmabteilung, nor did he give Röhm command of the official German army. Göring wanted to be the head of the Wehrmacht. So Röhm began to criticize Hitler publicly after he was ignored by the new chancellor. And he began a pressure campaign, having the SA march in cities across Germany in support of converting the SA to the German army, as well as a simple show of force. Hitler, Rome, Göring, and to a lesser extent Himmler, all went back to the beginning together in Munich. But Himmler, Göring, and Heydrich knew they had to eliminate Rome as a threat. And it had to be done in a way that did not upset the SA overall. There was too many men who could threaten them. Heydrich was made for this kind of deceitful strategy. And Rome had always been an outsider more than a straight shooter not political and had not interested himself in politicians at all. With the SA engaged in protests and demonstrations, the schemers flooded the offices of the Reichswehr, the army, with reports of an imminent SA putsch, the overthrow of the government and army. Heydrich and Himmler used the SD for a huge disinformation campaign directed at the army generals and Hitler to make them think that Ernst Röhm was maneuvering to take over everything. Hitler particularly needed the push to turn on his old comrade. As the apparent fake evidence piled up against him, Hitler realized that he would have no choice but to sacrifice Rome in order to maintain the support of the generals of the Reichswehr. They all knew that he wanted to take over. SS men were sent to follow senior SA leadership. There would be nothing left to chance in this preemptive strike. As many SA leaders assembled near Munich for a planned meeting with Hitler, the SS made their move early in the morning of June 30th, 1934, catching them completely off guard. There was no legitimate putsch in the making. But by this time, Hitler was enraged by the disinformation that he had been hearing from Himmler, Heydrich, and Göring. Imagine you were an officer getting ready for a meeting, 
a bunch of officers from the SA. You'd been with the SA for 10 years. And all of a sudden, you're surrounded by SS and arrested. Rome and a bunch of others in the senior leadership were arrested and held at Stadelheim prison for a few hours before being executed by firing squad. Then Goebbels, who had been with Hitler when Rome was arrested, went back to Berlin and let Goering know the time had come to release the execution squads. Trucks full of SS men scoured the country for victims who had fallen afoul of them. It was an excuse to punish old enemies and former rivals. Many were shot, some hacked to death. The official death count of the Knight of Long Knives would be only 85, most of whom were known to the regime. But the occasion was used to settle old scores between rivals, and the total death count may have been as high as a thousand. The army was ecstatic with the result. The SA was no longer in a position to challenge them as Germans' military, and Hitler declared the SS an independent organization and allowed them to form armed units. This effectively elevated the SS to elite status in Germany, just as Himmler had always wanted, and people began preferring to join the SS more than any other branch of the party. Himmler's ego must have thoroughly enjoyed this increase of status. Now that the eliteness of his group was well established, he invited the elite of Germany to join. Suddenly, racial selection took backseat and priority to prestige, title, and money. The SS sought high-ranking Prussian military names, princes, dukes, and the nobility, anybody with a Vaughn in front of their name. And that in turn attracted the upper middle class and their sons as well as other lawyers and intellectuals. After the Night of Long Knives and the suppression of the power of the SA, the Schutzstaffel really began to flourish. The rank and file came mainly from the peasant class. It had to have seemed like a great opportunity, an exclusive club in a rising Germany. But non-SS members could also be useful. There was an entire group called Friends of the Reichsführer SS, both businesses and individuals who donated large sums of money as sponsoring members. IG Farben, one of the largest chemical and pharmaceutical companies in Europe at the time, was a sponsor. Later, it would be one of IG Farben's subsidiaries that eventually provided the Zyklon B gas for the industrialized murder of Jews and other prisoners in the death camps. Friedrich Flick was a conservative industrialist who supported the Reichsführer SS with annual donations as well. IG Farben and Flick companies would come to have an estimated 75,000 to 90,000 slave laborers working for them during the war years. Himmler organized the SS into departments, each with different responsibilities. It's difficult to understand, and I'm not sure that I do completely. It is exactly the combination of the organization and structure of the Nazi apparatus that I find so frightening. Because there are never that many radicalized Nazis to run everything, which means that most of the day-to-day -day in and out was run by people just doing their jobs. Regular people, some of whom would be doing the same civil service job as anyone, but far too many would be complicit in the murder of millions. There was the personal staff Reichsführer SS Hauptamt under Brigadeführer Karl Wolf, then the SD Hauptamt under Gruppenführer Reinhard Heydrich, directing the security service, then the Rasse und Siedlingshauptamt, 
or Race and Resettlement Office under Obergruppenführer Walter Dahr, then head of the SS Court for Special Jurisdiction, and lastly the SS Hauptamt, the administrative center of all SS units, the one ring to rule them all. As time went on and the Nazi apparatus grew and became more complex and inscrutable, more departments were created and the SS was further divided into sections. The Waffen-SS, the military branch, the Totenkopfverband, or Death's Head Squad, which ran the concentration camps and rotated into active duty with the Waffen-SS, and the Allgemein-SS, which became the original old-school SS. With all of the organization and pomp, Hitler sought to create a mythology and an ideology for the SS, its own religion and creed. He didn't want it just to be an organization that he had put together. He wanted these people committed. But ultimately, despite secret midnight ceremonies and oath-taking rituals, that failed. The SS membership had become too broad to believe in the mystical origins that Himmler sought to create. And everywhere else, the consolidation of power continued. The Gestapo had begun diligently keeping an organized card system of enemies of the state. Anyone who posed a threat to the Nazis' hold on power. And the machine of terror grew increasingly over the years. In 1933, the Gestapo budget was a million Deutschmarks. By 1937, it had grown to 40 million. Once Heydrich took over, the prisoner count rose significantly. In the winter of 1935-36, to 36, 7,000 alleged Marxists were arrested despite conscientious objections from many in the legal framework. There were lawyers, judges, defense counselors trying to defend against the increasingly lawless detention of average people. But they continued to work within a legal framework. They were trying to make the laws work for them. But that legal framework could not overcome those that were intent on circumventing the system. If ever a Nazi official would be accused or convicted of abusing the law, Hitler would pardon him. Himmler and Heydrich established layers of bureaucracy that positioned themselves at the head of the Reichskriminalpolizei, the Reich Police, the Sicherheitspolizei, the Security Police, and the Gestapo. They had the right of preventative arrests, and they created their own brand of terror prison with the first concentration camps of Dachau, Sachsenhausen, and Buchenwald. Theirs was a vast concentration of power that answered to no one. The concentration camps themselves were planned initially as instruments of terror to maintain the regime. Their purpose? To frighten and deter anyone who might consider opposing the Nazis. Guards were hired from among men who had failed at much, and at best were bullies and at worst sadists. But even once the Nazis had gained almost total control over the police and government, the internal rivalries in the party were ever-present. Heydrich wanted to have command of the concentration camps, but Himmler kept him in check by putting the camp structure under command of Kurt Daluge, who was head of Orpo, the Ordnungspolizei across Germany. Daluge and Heydrich did not like each other much. Arthur Nieb, head of Kripo, the Kriminalpolizei, also wanted to be independent of Heydrich and keep Kripo independent of the Gestapo. For the entirety of the late 30s, Himmler, Heydrich and Goering did all they could to consolidate power for themselves. And in 1939, Himmler created yet another bureaucratic monster with the Reich Main Security Office, the RHSA, or Reichssicherheit Hauptamt, 
With the RHSA, Himmler officially made the SD the intelligence service for the Gestapo. The RHSA would combine all branches of the police under its umbrella. Old departments with new titles emerged, and familiar names show up in the many sub-departments. Office 1 was Administration and Legal, run by Werner Best, who had been the mind bending and shaping the legality of SS and SD policy to conform to existing German law. Office 2 would be Ideological Investigation. Office 3, Spheres of German Life, which kept tabs on what was happening to German citizens within their own country. Office 4, Suppression of Opposition, a.k.a. the Gestapo headed by Heinrich Müller with Adolf Eichmann as head of one of the sub-departments. Office 5, Suppression of Crime, headed by Arthur Nieb and responsible for normal, quote-unquote, normal criminal activity, even though at this point the Nazis were more responsible for most of the criminal activity than anyone else. Office 6 would be the Foreign Intelligence Service, and Office 7, Ideological Research and Evaluation, responsible for all anti-Semitic propaganda, public Nazi indoctrination. With the RHSA running security and the WVSA, the Wirtschaft und Verwaltungshauptamt, under Oskar Pohl, would run the business of terror, again with plenty of average people. The WVSA would be responsible for the logistics of the concentration camps, the work camps, or slave labor camps, for both the war effort and to pimp out to private industry. Slave labor would become instrumental to the war. Himmler's bureaucratic security monster was ready for the beginning of war. So far, I've been focusing on the political movement of the main significant players in the Nazi power structure and the structure of state and police power that grew within the Nazi organization. That helps to explain how everything came to have its place by 1939. Still, what it does not do is prepare anyone for how the next six years would unfold. And let's be clear, there is no comprehension of what the war would bring, and there is little chance that any leader of foreign governments knew what was in store for Europe, other than perhaps a repeat of World War I, which was nothing like World War II. There are too many World War II tangents that I could take, but my goal with this pod is to keep as focused as possible on the SS and what it did. And that's where I'm going to end the first part of this series. Part 2 will address the war years, and it gets much more intense. Thanks for listening. Just so you're aware, this podcast was researched and written by me with the help of books Masters of Death by Richard Rhodes, Anatomy of a Genocide by Omer Bartov, The Origins of Nazi Genocide by Henry Friedlander, and The Order of the Death's Head by Heinz Hohn. After you've listened to this, come back for part two.